I just kind of want Chris Cuomo to like just lay on top of me. <laughs> like I no, I know he's married. I know he's yeah. married. He's happily married. His wife mm-hmm. is gorgeous. I would never infringe on it. I, he could be clothed. Uh-huh. He could be. He could have a winter coat. I just want to feel the weight of his body on my body. Like, is that bad? I mean, I think it would probably still upset the wife. I would be cool with her, though. I'd just be like... Right. I I have no doubt that you'd be cool with her. I just don't know if she'd be cool with you, girl. He's just so cute. No funny business. I just want you to lay on my body. Hi, Patricia Hines. You guys, welcome to Obsessed with Disappeared, the podcast where Ellen Marsh and I tell the stories of missing people by recapping the episode of IDs Disappeared that covered their case. You're so good at that. (laughs) Before we go any further, can I ask you a question? Always. Are you dressed or not? I, I I cannot tell. What do you mean? I just mean like, are you in your sexy pajamas or no, are you? this is a cute sundress. <laughs> you, what What is your what? aversion to my tetas? <laughs> I have no aversion to them, but your breasts are heaving. I'm just saying. Strap. I'm not trying to objectify you. Strap down your titties, girls. It's going to be a wild ride. <laughs> Um, you guys, if you've been living under some sort of rock somewhere, and by which I mean you're not in our Facebook group, we launched, we have a merch line that launched. A lot of stuff is sold out, but we, it's a very limited line. We wanted to just kind of see how it went. Go to our website, you guys, disappearedpod.com. Click on the store button and see what's left. Ellen has worked so hard on this stuff, you guys. We have super limited quantities, and the way our merch is going to be working, once it's a retired style, it's done for. So That's grab right. it while we still have it and let us know what you think. We worked super hard, but we were just kind of guessing to see what everyone would like. I just kind of picked out stuff I liked. And when it's gone, it's gone. You guys, join the Facebook group. It's Obsessed with Disappeared podcast discussion group. Follow us on Instagram. Uh, it's The Disappeared Pod. Every Friday night, we go live at 6 p.m. Eastern and we just make fun of each other and talk about things and I get a little drunk and Daisy brings the hamster and then Ellen goes into the Facebook group right after almost every week to correct all the things she got wrong. And And your completely (laughs) irrelevant point is... Maybe you should get more stuff right. Okay. I mean, that tracks. (laughs) Oh, and we're on Twitter. If anybody can figure out what it is, let us know. (laughs) We we fight about it all the time. We literally fight over Twitter more than we have fought over anything in 2020. All right, you guys, season two, episode nine, Unfinished Business, tells the story of the disappearance of John Glasgow. When the chief financial officer of a prestigious construction company leaves home one morning, never to return, a confounding mystery unfolds. I knew instantly something was wrong. John has never been depressed, to my knowledge, but everyone has a breaking point. Could a financial audit explain why the trusted 45-year-old executive disappeared? Kind of felt like he was getting cornered a little bit. Did John Glasgow have something to hide? Or was there something darker involved in his disappearance? He would never have left his family. He would never have left me. 
Um, girl, we learned in that episode trailer that this guy is a chief financial officer, to which I say, oh, God, I feel like we have a walk to Mexico in our future. I know. Chief financial officers. We had the red-faced Dennis guy with the Calvert case. The minute they said he was a chief financial officer, I was like, hold on to your butts. This is, I, know. I don't know what's going to happen. I have one more note about this. Like, towards the end of the trailer, we meet this guy's wife, and she says, he wouldn't have left me, to which I said, oh, he's straight, which wasn't what I was thinking going in. Wait, why? <laughs> I don't know why. I really don't know why, but I was genuinely surprised when we met his wife. Gay until proven otherwise, I guess. <laughs> totally. The Patricia Hines story, only on Lifetime. <laughs> I mean, get Kathleen Zelder because that's going to be a hard case to disprove. <laughs> uh, we meet his wife, Melinda, who says... John was a very bright man, and he took his job seriously, and... He was very good at it, and he liked his job. Got real proud to work there. We learned that the company that he worked for was owned by a man named Bill Clark, and it was co-owned with the department store Dillard's. Did you know what Dillard's was? I, I had seen it before, but I have a note that just says, Dillard's is kind of a ridiculous name for a store, no? Yeah. Your breasts are falling out of your shirt. <laughs> They're not going to stay put. They're not staying in. And that thing around your head, is that bunny ears? <laughs> what? is your judgment. <laughs> it's just like, I, are you having a spa day? Am I interrupting? I actually did give myself a facial. Thank you for asking about something that has absolutely nothing to do with your business. <laughs> your face does look a little shiny, girl. It does. God. John did a really good job keeping the books. You know, everybody knew where all the beans were. So we meet this guy, William Clark. He's the son of the founder of this company that is co-owned by Dillard's that John is like the CFO of. And everyone is just saying like John's reputation was impeccable. Like he was beyond reproach. This was a very trustworthy guy. Right. And they say he was CDI's top accountant. I just want to know how you get to be a top accountant. Well, in the gay world, you just don't be a bottom if you're an accountant. You know, every time when it's like sporty new bottom, I'm the person who's always like, <laughs> like at Old Navy. It's like colorful tops. I'm like, ooh. Cut to a good 60% of our listeners Googling, what is a top? Please don't, you guys. After Bill Clark died in May 2007, CDI's partner decides to redistribute the company's stock among its top executives. What do those words mean, girl? I also just said, can you do that? <laughs> I mean, I thought, like, can you just, like, we're just changing it up. You're going to have less. I'm going to have more now. That's how it's going to go. We're just, like, you can you do that? I don't get it. No. We are so dumb. We're really dumb people. Is it distribute or distribute? Redistribute. Redistribute. No. Redistribute. <laughs> now it doesn't, it, you know, when you say a word over and over and then it turns into another word? Is it envelope or envelope? Envelope. 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 How do I say it? Envelope. You guys, it's distribute and envelope. Can we get on with this, please? Also, I just Googled what is a top. And just, wow. I'm just kidding. I used to work in theater. I've had tops and bottoms explained to me in plenty of detail. So they hire an outside company to check the books. But before the deal goes through, the company wants to be sure CDI's books are clean. 
In January 2008, Dillard's hires external auditors to conduct an exhaustive search of CDI's bookkeeping. This never ends well. No! I mean... But, but here's the thing. This is what kind of gets lost in this episode, is that, like, the son of the CEO that just died, that made everyone redistribute... Redist- Move it around, move it around, keep going. (laughs) He is telling us that, like, the whole system of keeping the record was developed by my dad, like, many, many years ago. And it seems to be, like, one of those systems that only can be understood by the person who invented it. Right. And maybe he was kind of shady and, like, John just was following his teachings and didn't know. All I'm saying is that, like, we're just told that, like, Dillard's wants to, like, basically just look at the books of this little company and make sure everything is in order. And as soon as they look at the books, they're like, girl, this doesn't make any sense. The scrutiny over CDI's bookkeeping reaches a new level, causing John to work day and night. I remember John saying, you know, they come every day and they ask the same questions. And we're pulling the same reports and we're pulling the same papers. He was getting behind on his regular work. We learned John is super stressed out and every day he's just focused on this audit. And so this is something Melinda, his wife, says the Friday night he comes home and he says he's so tired. He says, he said, well, I'd really kind of like to hang out and just hang out with my cat if that's okay." And you wonder why I was getting the gay vibe, girl. I mean, poor guy. He's so tired and stressed out. He just wants to hang out with his cat. So that's Friday night. And he spends the whole weekend at the office. And he's, like, trying to catch up on the work that he wasn't able to get done during the week. Then she says, like, he works all day Saturday. He goes into work Sunday morning. He comes home and lays on the couch. And Melinda's like, that's odd. He wasn't a napper. And I took that as a personal insult. Same. I was like, who's going to be offered a nap? And they're like, pass. Have you ever, like, laid down for a nap in the middle of the day and been like, fuck, this is awesome. (laughs) I know, but the converse of that is, have you ever laid down for a nap and then been like, ugh, I fucking hate naps. (laughs) No, who does that? Sunday is more of the same. John takes a break for lunch and goes home. Melinda notices her husband seems a bit distracted. What is going through John's mind is a mystery to Melinda. She encourages her husband to stay home and take the afternoon off. But when she leaves the house to go play tennis, John returns to the office. My favorite thing about this was that it reminded me of the couple from that other episode where it was like, he's taking a nap and she's going to play tennis. I was like, can you tell these two don't have kids? The leisure of it all. I know. So they had dinner plans that night at their cousin's house that was across the street. And they said something so funny. They said it was in January and, you know, the primary was coming up and there was a lot of political discussion and it was fun. Oh, <laughs> 2008 when politics was fun and not a life fucking death. Three ring circus with a side of anxiety peppered with tears and trauma. What? I know. So we get the backstory of Melinda and John. They knew each other from when they were growing up. Wait, this is my favorite part. I've made a note of this twice. We're told that they met for the first time in sixth grade and then went their separate ways for college, as though they both went straight to college from sixth grade. (laughs) I didn't notice that. That's funny. Christopher, Christopher, give us the line. They first met in the sixth grade in Nashville, Arkansas then went their separate ways for college. That was good. He's got a great voice. He should do voiceovers. I do do voiceovers, you guys. That's literally how we know each other. Christopher tells us, Years later, after each experienced a failed marriage. I said, I thought that was kind of a harsh term. And then I thought, who do I know that I can ask if that's a harsh term? Ellen, you're my only friend who didn't succeed at marriage. Do you think failed marriage is harsh? I didn't so much as have a failed marriage as I'm currently maritally disenfranchised. <laughs> 
Could somebody please re-enfranchise Ellen and take her off my goddamn hands, America? Please, sir. I'll be in the inside spoon. <laughs> but they, they reconnect. They fall in love. And they really are, all gay jokes aside, they really are sweet together. Yeah, they have like a nice, she says they're best friends. They have a really, you know, good foundation. I know you married just for sex and you and Steve hardly ever talk. <laughs> So, trust me, I know way too much about that, but some people are friends with their spouses. Yeah. So, that night they got home after their dinner at his cousin's, and he fell asleep in his chair watching TV. So, it's January 28th, that Monday morning, after the long weekend, the Sunday dinner. Melinda had gotten up in the morning. John wasn't in his chair that he'd fallen asleep in. <laughs> what? John wasn't in his chair. <laughs> Is that funny? It just, that- it, may, like, what? it makes it sound like... like John sleeps most nights in the chair. (laughs) So when I got up and he wasn't in the chair, you know, I just got ready for work like normal. I at first thought he may have gone for a run. Girl, what do those words mean? What's a run, girl? How do you do that? So running, uh-huh. my love, is you know when you get to a big gay bar and there's lots of gays yes. and the bar is all the way across the room? Yes, yes. You know how you push little twinks out of the yes. way to get to the bar and you move in a quick, fast-like motion? Yes. That's running. Oh, I can't do that. <laughs> I'm actually really good at running, you guys. Cut to me just jogging down the street with a vodka tonic in my hand, and you just like. (laughs) Happy hour's over at six, you guys. It's two for one for ten more minutes. I'm really off the rail. I'm really, I'm really unhinged today. Yeah. Okay. So she wasn't bothered. She went on with her day. She got ready for work. And at two thirty, out of the blue, she gets a call, and it's John's coworker, and he's like, "Hey, girl, where's John? He hasn't come to work." I knew instantly something was wrong, because John was either at home or he was at work. John was extremely predictable. Yeah, they call him extremely predictable, which is like not a nice thing to say about somebody who's probably dead. So I was like, girl, if I go missing, will you please just, when, when you sit down for my documentary, describe me as an adventurer, tell everybody that I had a very active lifestyle. He had a very active lifestyle. He <laughs> was not predictable. He could be at a bar. He could be at a gay bar. He could be at a restaurant bar. He could also be at a swim up bar if he was at a resort but not one that you have to like swim to one that you just kind of like walk yes. in the water to <laughs> honey i got your back thank you you never look i you never know with me turns out <laughs> Turns out you do. Um, So they go into like a little bit of a panic and they just kind of start calling everyone they know. This is where they find out that the neighbor says that they saw his car leave at 5.15 in the morning. Yeah. So if he wasn't going to work, which he didn't end up at work, we know now, where was he going at 5.15 in the morning? So I think that Melinda kind of throughout this is in a little bit of denial because she makes the point that like, well, the neighbor saw the car. They didn't necessarily see John. Yeah. So we don't know. Was John driving the car? I think probably yes. Yeah, same. That It was like a little bit of a red herring. I was like, huh, is that going to go anywhere? And it doesn't. But, but that is something that she says. So this is my favorite part, you guys. <laughs> <laughs> 5.30 p.m. rolls around. And still, no word from John. So when we decided we just, we had to call the authorities. At 5.45 p.m., the Little Rock Police Department sends an officer over to the Glasgow residence. The Little Rock, Arkansas Police Department shows up at 5.45 p.m. <laughs> this went 
through very fast. They are not messing around in Little Rock. And uh, I would think that the mayor of Little Rock and the mayor of Breckenridge are like golfing buddies. And they're like, this is a great catchphrase to get more people to come. Say, not in Little Rock, honey. And then the guy in Little Rock was like, really? That works? And then the Breckenridge mayor was like, yeah, just try it. They file a missing persons report then and there. They fill out a police report so fast, the likes of which we have not seen since Breckenridge, honey. <laughs> this is by far our gayest episode. I have nothing else to say about it. This episode is so gay. I love it. Happy Pride. What? It's October. What month is it? Who cares? It's 2020. We're all going to die. Anyway. Details are shared with police that might be clues in John's disappearance. We found some notes that he had left, apparently, for Melinda that had, uh, like, their bank account number on there and combination of their home safe or something. This episode could have been 21 minutes long. Yeah. Because the police are, like, walking around the house, and they're like, did he do anything weird before he left? And Melinda's like, no, absolutely not. He did, however, on my to-do list notepad that he knew I would see, he did write down the combination to our safe. He did put extra money in the safe, and he also wrote down our checking account number, but I'm sure he's coming back. Yeah, he wrote all that information, but then Melinda's like... Like, yeah, bitch, I'm a woman. I I know our account number and the combos to the safe. If I woke up and Steve was gone and the combo to the safe was written down on my to-do list, I'd be like, Ellen, he's never coming back. Yeah. Christopher goes, why John deliberately wrote down these numbers is unclear. Unclear to who, girl? He's he's leaving. We learn on Friday, January 18th, which is eight days before John goes missing, the Dillard's CEO, remember, the company that John works for is co-owned by Dillard's. And there's all the shenanigans going on with the money that John says he doesn't know anything about. So the Dillard's CEO calls John directly and says like, girl, what's going on over there? And just so you know, in sh- when shit like this goes down, it's always the CFO that goes to jail. And he's talking about John. The way he asked his question, he kind of dropped hints that the CFO is the one who goes to jail, you know, for offenses like this. And John came to me. He was just very disturbed. Say goodbye to the cat, John. <laughs> yeah. No cats in jail, John. He doesn't care about his wife. He's like, what about my cat? <laughs> and then the CFO, when he was questioned, denied saying that. And we only know it because John goes home that night and tells Melinda, like, he felt like his character was under attack. And, you know, and Melinda says she's never seen him that upset in her life. So... There's so many things happening here. Like, is John making the story up because he's going to go missing and he wants this to be the excuse? Or did that really happen and he's justified in being as upset as he was? We just don't know. We don't know, but we do know that John started recording his calls from there out because exactly what you said, he felt his character was under attack and he he was freaked out. So this is crazy, you guys. His family is desperate to know where he has gone and if he is alive and well. They begin strategizing their next move. He's got his cell phone with him, and you can track a cell phone. The Glasgow's ask John's boss, William Clark, for help. I'm friends with the guy who was running the company that we got our cell phones from at the time, so I kind of was able to cut through some of the red tape. William's friend is able to find out the location of the last cell phone tower to have received a signal from John's phone. And I'm like, oh, good. So you skipped judge and the warrant and the like blood and urine samples that we normally have to give in order to get cell phone records and William's over there just cutting through the red tape so because of the 
pesky red tape that we were able to get through, we learn a lot about John's cell phone records. We learn that at 5.15 a.m., his phone indeed pinged at Little Rock, which tracks with the neighbor's story. Because that's where he lives, yeah. Right, that that he left that area at 5.15. So then they, like, they're tracking the phone sort of down the highway, and the last ping on the phone is 60 miles west of Little Rock. And so the, they give the, the brother the location, and the brother goes, and it's like, it's a river. And the brother's like, yeah, no, this isn't where he would go. Like, he's not here. And, but he sees off in the distance, there's a place called, what's it called? It's called Petty Gen. It's called Petite Gen. <laughs> but they call it Petty Gen. <laughs> but I was like, it's Petite Jean. It's literally the word Petite. <laughs> and Jean, and they keep calling it Petty Gen. Petty Gen. It's like Worcester and w- Worcester. It's the weird. Girl, how do you say Worcester? Worcester. Oh, look who's here, everybody. What? You expecting me or something? What? How do you say Worcester? I, I say Worcester, Sharon. I'm from Massachusetts, girl. Where are you from, Swampskit? Where are you from, Dorchester? Where are you from, Framingham? Where are you from, Yarmouth? I actually am from Yarmouth, Sharon. You from Yarmouth? Get the fuck out of here. I fucking love Yarmouth. You ever go to the Pancake Man on Route 28? <laughs> Petty Jean Mountain State Park is a place familiar to John. Known for its stunning vistas and rocky bluffs, it's an outdoorsman's haven. Or as Patrick likes to call it, the netherworld. Yeah. <laughs> I have no use for that place. It's like hiking trails and shit. And it's like within the same area of where the cell phone pinged. So the brother's like, all right. So the brother does that thing on the Flintstones where they pick up the car and then they do the feet really fast and then they run off to that other place. Right. <laughs> so really quickly, we learn that an employee from the lodge nearby says that John's car, which was a Volvo SUV, is actually in the parking lot. They find the vehicle. Right, and this is so Steve. If Steve were ever to like leave me and like abandon me in the most like mysterious and fucked up way, this is exactly what he would do. They find the vehicle, the car is unlocked, and on the back seat, they find his like laptop case. And in the laptop case is every single thing ever issued to him by his company keys, credit card, gas card, and a cell phone were all in there. All the items John Glasgow leaves behind seem to be deliberately chosen. I thought it was strange that all those things would be in one place because typically he would have the cards in his wallet and his laptop either at home or at the office. To me, it almost seemed like he was putting everything in one place where we could find it. He's so type A and so organized, he had to do this. He's like, yes, I'm going to go missing, but I'm also going to tie up all the loose ends. Melinda, he's not coming back, girl. I'm sorry. Like, I don't mean to be insensitive truly, right. but like, he's he was not ever coming back. So they go as a group to scour the mountain, um, and the first day of the search, there's winds and there's rains. They say there's a tornado. You just breezed <laughs> over that. That sounds uber dramatic, but apparently they kept on going. It's why I don't go into the nature. You never know what's going to happen, girl. Stay inside, everybody. Yeah, I mean, I am. We have to. It's We're in a quarantine, so <laughs> A-OK by me. So here's something that I found really interesting. The car is now treated as a crime scene. At that time, we had it impounded and brought to the sheriff's office where the state police had come in and try to look for any evidence. And, you know, they found no fingerprints of John or anybody. There were no liftable prints in that car. That is interesting. That is interesting. So I called the Jersey City Police Department. (laughs) 
because I just wanted to talk to somebody who could give me more information about it. I laid out this story and he and I told him the story and I said, no prints inside or outside. And he's like, well, maybe the rain. And I said, actually, it did rain. He's like, rain usually doesn't kill all fingerprints. He's like, but there is no way there wouldn't be a fingerprint inside of your own car. Your steering wheel, the brake. So I I call shenanigans on that. There's also more. We'll get there's like another thing that happens with the car that I that that sort of supports this and we'll get there in a second. I first just wanted to say that Melinda who's like still in denial says that he was out in the woods strategizing their next move. And I was like, "Melinda, girl, like I start to worry about people when it feels like they're in like this level of denial. I know, I know, but what what else do you have? I mean, you have two choices. You choose to go to the ugly, scary place or you choose not to. I'm always amazed at people who can keep their cool and composure and just put their head down and do what needs to be done because you and I would be worthless. I, well, my thing is like, I love my husband so much, but when he goes out for like a run or something and he like is out longer than I think he should be, my immediate thought is like, I don't know any of the bank account passwords. Yeah. I don't know where any of our credit cards are. I don't know how much money we have. <laughs> like, yeah. I don't I don't know the password to Daisy's online schooling. You guys, Steve can't die. I don't know why I don't know what I would do. <laughs> you and my ex-husband have everything in common. He literally texts me for her shoe size once a month and her social security number. To, I'm like, can you write it down? So Wednesday, they send a rescue team. We meet George Raines, who's a... Yep. I was. I'm sorry. Did you want to? I'm sorry. Well, I was, did I was the, saying that. Like, did the did, middle? Did the middle of my sentence interrupt the beginning of your sentence? How did that? I'm so sorry. In the hopes of finding him alive, a major search and rescue operation is underway. We started out with the Pettit Gene Search and Rescue Team. They were up bright and early the next day, which would have been a Wednesday morning. After an initial search yields no sign of John. The park's rescue team calls for reinforcements. They brought in George Storains, who I think is recognized as the best search and rescue man in the in Arkansas. By the time George Rains gets there, they've already done a search, and he's like he's like the guy who's really good at so it. So when I said that, you needed <laughs> mm-hmm. you were just gonna you were gonna say it again. <laughs> okay. <laughs> so. <laughs> Now it's Thursday, January 31st. Wait, but talk about this guy. Talk about the George Stowe Reigns guy. You just did. (laughs) You just talked about it. You interrupted me as if you were you were giving me new information that I don't have written down on my page. All right, let me just say this. Yeah, say more. Say more. (laughs) Go on. This guy, I'm just going to say this quickly and quietly. Yeah, no, say it, say it. This guy, George Joe Rains, is apparently the best search and rescue man in Arkansas. My note says, George <laughs> Rains is the best rescue guy in Arkansas. But your mouth didn't say it. It's great if your notes say it. Because you interrupted me. <laughs> oh, God, your word hole is just a lot for me today. <laughs> just... It's just coming right at me. I am staring uh, right at your cleavage. And I don't honestly- Do you why know how many men would love to be in your position right now? Can you just say thank you? The words you're looking for is thank you. <laughs> Ladies, do you even remember what episode we're doing at this point? Oh my God. And so Christopher tells us- Three days after he is reported missing, the search for John Glasgow on Petty Jean is in full throttle. 
the canines got here, and we used them and where his car had last been seen. He wasn't seen there, but we knew he was there because of his car. So they bring in the canines, and I love this because they call them the best bloodhounds. The best bloodhounds in the state of Arkansas are brought in to hunt down John's trail. And I just imagine, like, this gay guy named Brian who's like, okay, bitches, it's the best bloodhound competition. Work it, sniff it, lift it, bark it, find it, sit down, sit down, terriers, sit down, shepherds. It's the working dog's turn. Come on, bloodhounds. I love Brian. He owes me a callback. Oh, God. So they bring the best bloodhounds, and they find his scent, and then they lose it. So what happens is, like, the the dogs go to the car, and they start there, because they know that that's where he once was, right? And they sort of, like, follow the scent for, like, a second, but it doesn't go anywhere. And this is where I'm with you on, like, the, well, if there's no fingerprints anywhere in the car, and the car was wiped down, and it seems like he actually wasn't in the car, or if he, like, he didn't wander very far from the parking space, to me, there's a couple of options. Either he was never in the car and somebody just put the car there as a place to put the car or he was in the car and then somebody else came and got him. Yeah. Like a tandem driver like that theory on the Maura Murray case. Right. We get more into that in a little bit. Um, And then. Are you going to yell at. I feel like you need to yell at Christopher here. Oh, oh, Christopher. Oh, Christopher Wright pisses me off right now. Here we go. <laughs> you know what he says? Christopher don't, says. Don't, 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 oh, oh, oh. Don't take this away from me. Christopher says. It's as if John parked the car and then disappeared into thin air. Christopher! (laughs) You know how much I hate that! He did not disappear into thin air! (laughs) I get it, there's no fingerprints, there's no scent, there's no John, but people don't disappear into thin air, Christopher! Why do you do this? You're making it weird between us now. I feel so very... Very ashamed. So they have an exhaustive search of this park. Now, Pettigen State Park is 3,000 acres, and it's located in Conway County, Arkansas. So they feel like they've exhausted their search in that area. So they call the search off for that area, but they decide to continue in the surrounding businesses of Pettigen. And so they look through traffic camera footage to see if they can spot John's vehicle on the way to the park. And they look through all kinds of gas stations and things. They question employees of the business of the surrounding area and they come up with nothing. They do come up with like a little bit of a timeline, which is that because of the cell phone pings, they can tell that it took him two hours and 15 minutes to get from home to the petty gin, like where the car was found. But the direct route would have only taken him an hour. It is anyone's guess why John might have taken the long road to petty gin. That raises all kinds of possibilities. If the car stopped off somewhere, did John get out of the car? Could he have possibly been the victim of a crime? And then somebody else drove the car up to Pettigene. This is where it all just spirals into questions because nobody knows anything. We also learn that there is an airport nearby and it's not a huge hub. And the sheriff tells us that there was no air traffic that day, but it was privately owned and they can't man it. And then the sheriff tells us that they do have a lot of what they call touch and goes. Which I actually needed explained to me because that's what I call a bumble date. I'm like, touch me and go. Like, just touch me and you don't have to go home, but you can't stay here. So... I have a lot of touch-and-go stories. (laughs) Do you want to hear them? Nope, I really don't. 
<laughs> we never got clarity on are those bunny ears? It's a headband, Patrick, to wash my face. <laughs> it's Whoa. to pull back my bangs. Then just to get a little bit more clarity, are you dressed or not? Why are you obsessed with me? Just give me one answer. <laughs> I just want to know. Am I the first thing you think about when you wake up in the morning? <laughs> yes or no? It's a yes or no. It's a yes. That's a yes. Okay. <laughs> So I'm just wondering if this is how all the men in your life get treated and if perhaps this might have led to your marital disenfranchisement. Two weeks have now passed since John Glasgow's disappearance. Police question employees and confiscate the tapes from the recording device John had recently put on his work phone following the fallout with Dillard's CFO. So remember how John was recording all of his phone calls because he was freaked out about this audit? Yeah. They get those recordings. Nothing really pans out from that either. So the CDI does a forensic audit of a computer. The the records, they say, are clean. Everything checks out. I know. So does John's personal finances. Everything is paid for. He owes everything. Like, he doesn't even so much as, you know, owe something to the cable company. Everything checks out. I don't think John's done anything wrong. I don't think John's done anything wrong. You know, and they post flyers all over. So we get a little bit of a ding here in Russellville, Arkansas, which is a trucker town. They say that there were several sightings of John, a gas station attendant, and then someone at the Waffle House notices him. But this is what I have to say. Maybe I'm a horrible monster person. Don't you say anything. I just thought you but, were going to stop at whore. <laughs> no. <laughs> but like... Maybe I'm a whore. I, who, but, who even knows with all these touch and goes? But who notices anyone? I mean, back in the before times, I went to Ted Baker and bought a dress and someone helped me for like the better part of a day. Yeah. And then I got to the register and they were like, who helped you? And I was like, uh, she was a girl. She had hair. I know. She also had two eyes. I'm not a monster. I'm I not know. the devil. But my point is people don't notice people. Like whenever they say someone saw him at the Waffle House like did you but he, they also say that he's like pretty nondescript and so that like you know being like a middle-aged white guy with like blue eyes and brown hair a lot of people fit that description yeah like no tattoos no piercings no uh, not, not super tall not super short I don't know so after all of this right there's been the sightings in this small town just like just kind of like do-gooder with like a working dog her name is Julie Jones she calls the family and offers to help I saw John's picture and something about his picture just made me want to call and just offer our assistance. I got a call from a, a lady in Maine. Uh, her name was Julie Jones. She had a dog named Quincy. Her name is Julie Jones and her dog's name is Quincy. What does that mean her dog's name is? Quincy Jones. <laughs> wash over you was a fun journey for me yeah yeah congrats one point patrick it only took you six months your breasts are gonna pop out of that thing any second stop staring at them (laughs) eyes up eyes up eyes on my eyes i kind of can't take my eyes off them now that you mention it you're right i can't take my eyes off them now you see my superpower So, the Glasgow family pays for Julie Jones and Quincy Jones. (laughs) I can't believe I missed that joke. 
Oh man, that really makes me feel that makes me feel subpar. The Glasgow family agrees to pay for the woman and their dogs to come to Arkansas. At this point, they're willing to do anything to find John. So the Glasgow family pays for Julian Quincy to come to Arkansas to find him. They start at Mather Lodge. Which is where his car was found. Right. And they don't tell them much more than the other bloodhounds tell them. No, something well, that just needs say that, to be like, said. Well, just say that the scent didn't go anywhere. Right. That's what that means. Yeah. The scent didn't go anywhere. But something <laughs> that... <laughs> Great. I'm just uh, trying to make. I'm trying to keep it clear for the people. So, but just to be just to be clear, Quincy is a very special dog. Quincy who? Quincy Jones. <laughs> Quincy. Do- Stop! I gotta get through this. I gotta go put my tits away. You gotta, I gotta get through this. Something that that Quin. <laughs> Do you think anyone is still listening? No, 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 no one made it to the end of the episode. This is just for us, you guys. So something that needs to be said about Quincy. Quincy is... Quincy who? Stop. Julie claims the dogs are trained to pick up on cold trails. The last case that we did, it was six months old, and we traced from where the person went missing to where the area that they were found in. So they start at the Mather Lodge, which is where John's car was found, and he that didn't really go anywhere. So they go to the gas station where his phone pinged. And where somebody said they saw him. Right. And so Quincy goes and jumps up on the counter, which means he might have paid for something there, but there was no surveillance. Right. So we can't really corroborate that. Then he goes to the Comfort Inn. He goes to a specific room. Like across the street from the gas station. Right. And then right across from there, he goes to the Waffle House where the waiter had identified him previously. This was three weeks after he disappeared. But here's what happens again. None of these things really, again, nothing is tied up. These ends are still loose. Yeah. There's no paper trail, meaning there's no credit cards. Right. There's no surveillance. And so the the cops kind of just have to throw it away. So it's all really frustrating and they don't know how to tie up these loose ends. Right. Or like what any of it means or if it means anything. Right. So in February 28th, 2008, which is one month after he went missing, Dillard releases a statement basically exonerating John of anything. Dillard's explanation was that they did not suspect any misappropriation of funds from CDI by John Glasgow or anyone else. But then just like a little while later, they release another statement like where they basically have to like do a reassessment of their earnings going back seven years. And basically they overestimated their earnings by $7 million which they are blaming on the company that John was the CFO for, basically saying that they had overcharged Dillard's for like all these different construction projects. But like they're not necessarily naming John by name. Right. And so this is where it goes back to the beginning. Remember in the beginning when we talked about the original founder of this company created a system of money that only he kind of understood? Right. It could be that, but we just don't get any real answers about this. Yeah, and nobody knows if John did know this or he didn't. Was he scared of what he knew? Maybe he knew something and he didn't want to. But the point is, nobody knows. And his whole family keeps attesting that he wouldn't have left his wife. Says he would never have left his family. He would never have left me. He never would have left his cat. He wouldn't have left the cat. You tell me that guy didn't watch Golden Girls and Designing Women when she went to bed. I know, I know. You tell me that. But everyone kind of agreed that like he wasn't on that mountain and people don't think he went missing. So Can I just give my theory before you give us the update? Yes, yes. My theory is just that like this guy is I think that he didn't do anything wrong. I think that he figured out that there was wrongdoing and felt that he was gonna get blamed 
shamed for it. Yeah. And I don't know how this happens. It seems like a wild thing to do. But he, to me, it was very clear when he left the house that morning and wrote down the safe combination in the bank accounts. Yeah. That was the number one red flag. This guy is not coming back. No matter what he's going to do, he's not coming back. Then, And then I think that, that it is possible that he went to this area 60 miles away where the gas station was, where the hotel was, where the Waffle House was, and maybe took a day or two to figure out what he was going to do. And then either he went into the park and died by suicide or... Well, so wait. So I will give my 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 theories on his death after you give us the update. Because the episode ends with no update, right? Right. So seven years after John went missing, hikers came across a piece of a human skull while hiking near Red Bluff Drive, which is near Pettygen Mountain. So, like, do we know how... Is it, like, in the same general area? Yeah. So Arkansas State Police officials confirmed that it was the partial remains of John Glasgow. And a couple days later, the clothed remains of John John was discovered. Now, what's weird, because remember he left all that stuff in the car? Yes. His wallet and his personal driver's license and his personal credit card were actually on him, confirming his identity. So his body was found about 200 yards from where the skull was found. And according to the reports, the skull did not have any trauma or gunshot wounds to it. So the family has gone on record saying they believe that foul play was involved, but it's kind of a closed case. In every article that I read, it said the Glasgow family would appreciate your respect of their privacy, would appreciate the respect of the privacy article after article but it was him that was found and I think maybe he left his wallet and identification on him on the off chance that he was found because why would he leave all those other things in the car but if he did die by suicide what was the like what was the how did he take his life poison I mean you 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 obviously couldn't tell any skin trauma and because it was seven years of decay and deterioration and the elements there is no DNA evidence obviously there's not a lot of tests that could be run on skeletal remains unfortunately my only other thought was like did he go out there to take a walk in the woods and fall off a cliff by accident you know what I mean like yeah these kinds of cases where there are no answers and there will never be any answers they're the ones that are the hardest for me to swallow Ellen I know it's so hard and the family seemed um, just denial and I just I, I feel I feel horrible it's a very sad story with no conclusion Say something funny. <laughs> that dog's name is Quincy Jones. <laughs> you guys, it's season two, episode nine. We're plowing right through them. Look, I keep forgetting to say it, so I'm going to say it at the top. We're edited by Henry Lavoy, who, when we record our ads separately, we make Henry his own separate 45-minute podcast of ads. We really do. And Ellen's support sexual harassment of the poor boy. Listen, I got nothing else to do. <laughs> Join us on Friday nights at 6 o'clock where we go over this week's episode, talk about what you all have told us. You guys tell us some secrets in the DMs. I have some secrets to reveal this week. At The Disappeared Pod, and you can join us on the Facebook group, the Obsessed with Disappeared Podcast Discussion Group. There's shit going on there all the time. And get to the merch store, you guys. We're recording this like a week before you're going to hear it, so I don't even know what's left. 
very limited quantities of our merch that Ellen designed. It's so great, but there's not a lot of it. So go, it's disappearedpod.com. Click on the store button. There's some stickers, there's some lapel pins, there's some mugs, there's some water bottles. And we're not even going to tell you you have to put water in them. No. You can put, you're, you're a goddamn adult. You can put anything you want in it. Um, you can find me at Patrick Hines underscore on the Instagram. Find Ellen at Ellen Marsh on the Instagram. Uh, you can find Donald Trump at Joe Biden on the Instagram where I ask you to give generously. It's a, it's the first time I've ever made that joke. Yeah, you love that joke. <laughs> You're nothing if not consistent. <laughs> Wear a mask. We love you. We love you. Bye. Bye. <laughs> wait, you say it. Wait, how do you think you say it? Redistribute. No, you're putting the wrong emphasis on the wrong syllable. Dispatch. Dispatch. Oh my God, snow. You've never seen snow? No, I'm from Hawaii. You are a liar. Yeah, yeah, don't say Prime of Your Manhood. I mean, I've seen that movie. It's hot. Prime of Your Manhood. Mm -hmm. What's the plot to that? Um, it's less plot driven mm-hmm, mm-hmm, mm-hmm. and more like man driven. Right. I also like the movie, which with, with a similar description, um, uh-huh. shaving Ryan's privates. <laughs> so, it's a similar sort of similar story, story driven film. I think I it also, won some awards. The other thing about this that we've learned is that Ellen enjoys gay pornography, which <laughs> literally makes perfect sense to me, you guys. <laughs> Nothing about our friendship has ever tracked more. John, what's so exhausting about being a, like a numbers guy? What's so like, why are you exhausted from that? He was working like all day and night. He like worked through the weekend, she said, but, um, okay, but well, still. Okay, well, I didn't mean to touch a nerve with you, Ellen. God. No, just- I mean, it's a fine. Okay, I'm sorry. <laughs> Out of my, the corner of my eye, it looked like you were doing. This. Like I thought, it looked like you were giving me the the finger right to the camera. <laughs> I'm like, yeah, that's I mean, an important I would. point. There you, there you go. There, there's some of that. There's some of that. You want that? I can do it with that hand too. Look at that. I, I love it also when they judge your passwords. They're like medium. I know. I'm like medium. <laughs> I had 16 exclamation points in the middle of that password. You think that's medium? <laughs> Bitch, that's a strong ass password. <laughs> And then, like the phone company calls you, and they're like, "Can you t- can you tell me your password?" And you're like, "It's um, it's it's, uh, it's it's I heart butt stuff." I'm sorry, what, sir? It's um, I I it's capital I I, I heart um butt stuff. Yeah, you and Travis should make a bowling team, and then go bowl yourselves down an alley and never come back. Could we just Wait, what? Could we just make out? Disgusting. You're gross. You know what? Here we go. So. I actually do want a boob lift, so. Um, How much higher can you get them? (laughs) 